Meet Your Maker makes professional-grade grinders, vacuum sealers, sausage stuffers, dehydrators, and just about everything else to turn your garage, deer camp, or kitchen into a meat processing haven. Meat only sells their processing tools direct to consumer, cutting out the retailer markup guaranteeing you the best price. Meat also has the only lifetime warranty in the industry, and Meat ships your tools direct to you for free. Visit MeetYourMaker.com and use code WAYPOINT for an exclusive discount. And get ready to deer IY this fall. This episode of the Flushman Dustin Podcast is brought to you by Hunt Ready. Reliable equipment driving inspiration in the outdoors. And all of their equipment is sourced and handcrafted here in the U.S. of A. Their mission is to build gear that's extremely durable, highly versatile, and ultra-light to further enable your journey into the field, regardless of where the road may lead. So be sure to go out and check out Hunt Ready at H-U-N-T-R-E-D-I.com. That's HuntReady.com. This episode is also brought to you by Gundog Outdoors. They're focused on the safety and comfort of our hunting dogs. We personally carry the Gundog Outdoors first aid kit, as it has all of the items that we need to keep our dogs safe in the event of an injury. Be sure to go check out gundogoutdoors.com and use code RINGNECKS to save you some cash. This recorded. Hunters, welcome back to another Flushman Dustin podcast. Uh, tonight we have Ted on. He uh, is supposed to be retired. We were talking about that, but like he said, he's, he's not. not. So, uh, again, this I don't know if this is part of his job description or not, but uh, we appreciate him coming on. He's with the North American Grouse Partnership. Uh, I actually met Todd at Pheasant Fest. Um, he was next to the booth that we were, and we got to talk in and uh, was telling him about the trips that we had planned and how we might be going out to Wyoming to chase some sage grouse. And uh, so after chatting with him, I was like, oh, we can get you to come on and we're going to talk about the, the lesser prairie chickens and uh, all that information will be in this podcast of where they're currently at with that. Um, but anyways, enough of me blabbing. Ted, if you want to introduce yourself, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, great to be here. Um, I'm excited for your sage grouse hunting trip because nothing is more cool than that, I will say. Yeah. <laughs> At the first uh, birds my yellow lab ever retrieved were sage grouse. Oh, uh, nice. nice. Before she retrieved a duck. Uh, so, anyway, my name is Ted Cook, and I'm the executive director of the North American Grouse Partnership, uh, grousepartners.org, if you want more information. And uh, we uh, include in our work all 12 North American grouse species, but we focus on the four prairie grouse, uh, which is greater prairie chickens, lesser prairie chickens, sharp-tailed grouse, and sage grouse, we include in prairie grouse. Um, in particularly right now, we're focusing our efforts on the lesser prairie chicken found in the southwestern Great Plains. That's uh, Western Kansas, Western Oklahoma, Western Texas, Eastern New Mexico, and Southeastern Colorado. And the reason we're focused on them is uh, the southern, uh, Southwestern Great Plains are the most imperiled of our imperiled grassland ecosystems. And that is evidenced by the fact that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is about to list the lesser prairie chickens under the Endangered Species Act, the species we used to hunt 
is being listed under the Endangered Species Act because of habitat loss. And uh, so that's what we're here to talk about today. Yeah, for sure. Yep. How, uh, so um, I guess what has brought them to, you said habitat loss. Do you know like the amount of acres that have been lost through the years that have started to bring them to the conclusion that we're coming to and what has stopped the hunting of them? And I guess how many so, years ago was that? Well, it's, it's a good, that's a great question. And uh, of course, um, I can't resist. So I, I was a biologist for the U.S. Endangered Species Biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for 30 years. So I'm authorized to tell this joke. Okay. But uh, how many biologists does it take to change a light bulb? Nick, I'll let you answer. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll say three. One to hold the ladder, one to climb the step, and one to put the light bulb in. The answer is, I need more data. Right. <laughs> yeah, don't know if it's an LED light bulb or a regular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Light bulb. I need more information before I make, you know, we make a decision. And so uh, I can say that about electric braking is it depends on where you want to start when. But the fact is, when uh, settlers came, you know, west across, across the southern Great Plains and, and Native Americans were in the southern Great Plains uh, and fed themselves on lesser prairie chickens and, you know, walked through the sea of grass that existed then. They never could have imagined the day when all that would be left of the prairies is small remnant patches, and all that would be left of lesser prairie chickens is an endangered species. I mean, think about that. Think about our predecessors who came before us and, all, and felt lost in the sea of grass with these chickens, and today all we have left is, is a few postage stamps and an endangered species. So. Whatever the numbers are, uh, whatever numbers I tell you, well, you know, somebody else say, well, yeah, I'm not quite right. And, you know, they may or may not be right, just like I may or may not be right. But there used to be millions of birds across tens, if not hundreds, of millions of acres. Okay. Uh, and today we've got, uh, I don't know, 30,000, probably less now, birds uh, across maybe 4 million acres. And so we've lost over ninety percent of the range in our head. Yeah, exactly. And, and and this is this is not unique to just lesser prairie chickens. Heath hens were the prairie chicken of the east. They became extinct one hundred years ago. Atwater's prairie chickens in coastal Texas are functionally extinct. The only place that they persist is in captivity, and we keep trying to put them out in the wild, and they don't make it because prairie grouse are very hard to reintroduce. You need a minimum population size that's enough for multiple lex to form and for their social groups to form over large areas. And once they're gone from the landscape, restoring them is extremely difficult. And so we've already lost the heath hen and functionally the Atwater's prairie chicken, which maybe someday we'll get back in the wild, but not today. Lesser prairie chickens are next. And you know what else is declining? Greater prairie chickens, sharp-tailed uh, sharp grouse, and sage grouse, all our prairie grouse are in decline. And, and this is a moment that the Grouse Partnership is trying to seize the opportunity to say, hey, uh, hunting community, ranching community, agriculture community, Americans, let's wake up to this loss. I don't know if, you're, if your listeners know, um, grassland ecosystems, prairies, are the most threatened ecosystem on the continent. 
no Why ecosystem more imperiled. Well, and so you look at the history of settlement of North America, right? Our grasslands are kind of Great Plains, right? Central part of the U.S. extends north to Canada and south to Mexico. And so Iowa is 95% ag, right? I mean, corn. Where does corn yeah. come from? It comes from Iowa, right? <laughs> so, yep. and it used to be, go ahead. I just said, yep. Keep yeah, so it, it used to be that uh, uh, small ag operators were small enough and inefficient enough. There were hedgerows and spaces between fields that would grow pheasants and other upland game and quail. But now, uh, large agribusiness has taken over. They've smoothed the landscape. The fields are forever wide. And uh, there's fewer and fewer places for wildlife to live. And prairie grouse are really emblematic of that. And so... Uh, and then, like I said, lesser prairie chickens uh, are farther down the road than anything but for key pens and that water's prairie chickens, which again are extinct and functionally extinct. And so uh, we're, the Grass Partnership is just passionate about this. We have just got to use this moment as a call to action to stop the loss of habitat from due primarily to agriculture. And this is getting back to your original question. I'm sorry, it's taken so long, but you, you can tell I'm fired up about this. But uh, agriculture has caused the most loss over time. More recently, energy development being oil and gas and then wind energy. Prairie grouse do not like tall structures. And the moment you put it in a wind farm, those grouse are gone for miles around. And so those are the historic and ongoing threats. That, and then, uh, you know, other, other classic things, um, you know, invasive species, uh, loss of native grasslands, uh, grasses and forbs, uh, urban and suburban development. It, it all adds up to habitat loss and that's what threatens most species is habitat loss yeah i never uh, i didn't even think of the windmills we had a I didn't we were talking to a guy uh, uh last week uh and he did mention uh, you know minnesota has grouse and basically every state around iowa has a species of grouse in it and then you have iowa that has God, you don't go to the western side of the state where it's more prairie-like. It's more flat out there. And there's freaking windmills. You drive at night and all you see is red blinking lights everywhere from windmills, you know. And from what I know, the windmills, the amount of uh, energy that they actually produce, the cost of what they are and whatnot is actually more expensive. And but... I mean, gas isn't getting any fucking cheaper. We know that. So, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> I'm in all. When it comes to energy, I'm in all of the above, right? I want gas in my car now, and I want renewable energy tomorrow. Uh, and we'll never get rid of gas. It's such a highly concentrated form of energy. It's going to be important for for a lot of things. But uh, but we need to move towards you know more renewable sources, and wind energy is one of them. It's just what happens. And I speak of Atwater's prairie chickens on the coast of Texas. So there's a string of national wildlife refuges along the coast some of which we're trying to bring Atwater's prairie chickens back. Wind energy developers look at those open grasslands uh, that are not private land, that are near the coast, that have a lot of wind, and they say, what a perfect place to put our wind turbines. Well, that's exactly where Atwater's prairie chickens want to live. And so uh, we, got, you know, we can have wind energy and chickens too, but we just got to be smart about it, that's all. Yeah, the placement yeah. and whatnot. It's almost like a, a partnership that you guys need to build with these wind energy corporations to help them understand where you guys are coming from and then help them maneuver where they need to put their the wind energy at and 
whatnot to still have habitat and sustainable life for the, you know, for the grouse and prairie chickens and whatnot. But, That's right. And, and, you know, wind energy developers are people too, right? Uh, ag producers are people too. Oil and gas yeah. uh, developers are people too. And so they don't hate grouse. They don't try to hurt. They, they just don't know any better. And it's because um, we don't do a good enough job communicating. Just what you said. That's exactly right. And so yeah. uh, to try to get ahead of the curve, that's our challenge and our opportunity. And that's what the North American Grouse Partnership is planning. For sure. Yeah. You know, and it seems like in a lot of organizations, you know, the the main partnership that you hear of is them working with farmers and ranchers and whatnot. And then you got to look at the broader spectrum of who else can you work with, you know, to bring back habitat because it's not just farmers and ranchers, like you said, you know, and so I think that's super important to, to point out that there's other options out there to bring back habitat um, and still produce energy and uh, keep the species alive. And then, so are all, are all grouse species native to America? I know like the pheasant was introduced, you know, many years ago are, you know, like, I I think, yeah. So like the, uh, oh God, I'm drawing a blank on it. the sharp-tailed grouse that is native to like the Dakotas, I believe, right? Yeah, actually, it's yeah native. Uh, I'm not sure how far south. Uh, I, I'll say probably into Nebraska historically into Iowa, although they may not be there anymore. Uh, and I'm and, and then sharp-tailed grouse are actually native all the way up into northern British Columbia. In fact, there's uh, oh, sharp-tailed wow. grouse native to Alaska. Yeah, really cool. Really interesting birds. And so all four of the prairie grouse species I mentioned are native to North America. Sharptails, greater prairie chickens, lesser prairie chickens, and sage grouse. Um, and then there's 12 other grouse species, you know, of course, rock grouse, uh, spruce grouse, blue grouse, sooty grouse, which used to be the same when I split out the, the coastal or in them. Uh, and then a few ptarmigan species. And that's uh, most of them that I can think of. Ptarmigan's um, probably... Primarily in Alaska, isn't it? Well, yeah, they're, uh, they are from Colorado north. In fact, there used to be a population in New Mexico. I'm not sure if there still is. That's what um, south. Yeah, believe it or not. Now, I'm not sure which of those are introduced, have been introduced historically. Uh, I think New Mexico was, maybe Colorado was. And so ptarmigan that are native may not be until Montana north, something like that. Um, yeah, they're, they're a northern bird. You're exactly right. They're northern slash high elevation. So, you know, where they do occur in the continental U.S., you know, they're in the way high. Yep. Nice. But, uh, but then the introduced species, you know, pheasants, chucker, um, Hungarian partridge, uh, and the quail are introduced to many places outside of their range, but they are native to North America. Yep. Um, of course, bobwhite quail have been on the decline for a long time. I think we all know that. Uh, we're an upland fan. Um, yeah. Scaled quail are doing okay in uh, Southwest. And then, uh, oh gosh, um, I'm not going to say the name of the quail. Quail Mob. Montezuma quail. Um, it's not really for sure about grouse, not quail. But anyway, uh, there's a couple of uh, Southwestern quail species that are incredibly cool. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, it's <clears throat> yeah, it's been interesting the past how many years just to change in landscape and bird numbers and you know it's it's awesome to see the organizations like you guys partnering up and trying to bring things back you know and i mean that's what it's gonna take as people passionate like obviously we can tell you are you know and um so let's go back to the the lesser prairie chickens you mentioned that they're going to be uh in, in endangered species here uh potentially uh and can we talk a little bit about that and what that means as a bird that's going on the endangered species? What's that? What's just what's that look like? So a year ago, around June 1st, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service proposed to list lesser prairie chickens under the Endangered Species Act as threatened in the northern part of the range. So I think Kansas, Oklahoma, and then endangered in the southern part of Texas. Uh, New Mexico, southeastern Colorado. And so the service is due to publish uh, an, a new document any day now, probably in the next week or so. Uh, and they'll either finalize their proposed rule, which will list them as threatened and endangered in different parts of the land, or uh, they'll do something different. They might list them all as endangered or all as threatened, or they might decide to not list lesser prairie chickens. Uh, my money is on them basically publishing a final rule that looks something, you know, largely like the proposed rule. And so I think I will list lesser prairie chickens as threatened in the north and endangered in the south. Um, but there's just no getting around. So the service actually listed the chicken back in 2012, or 13, and then um, uh, industry groups sued and won, and the uh, chicken was delisted. Uh, and then environmental groups sued the Fish and Wildlife Service again. The Fish and Wildlife Service Department of Interior uh, gets sued more than any other department in the entire federal government, interestingly. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is one outstanding reason why. <laughs> so they always get sued by both sides, right? So industry sued and won, and then environmental is sued and won. <laughs> To, to relist the birds, and now the service is proposing to relist. So it's just crazy. Um, uh, but anyway, um, that aside, I, I expect in the next week or so that the service will list chickens threatening or endangered in the south, whatever it is that it's not that much. Um, what, so what, go ahead. What does, uh, what's it look like for, um, between threatened and endangered, how do they classify the difference? Yeah, so great question. So um, indeed, there's, there are nine take prohibitions listed in the Endangered Species Act. There are things you cannot do, you know, uh, take, pursue, wound, hunt, capture, trap, uh, destroy habitat, blah, blah, blah. If you list a species as endangered, all nine of those take prohibitions um, are implemented automatically. If you list a species as threatened, the service can then name which of the nine take prohibitions apply and, and not apply the other ones. And so um, it, it's called to a, a 4D rule, section 4D of the Endangered Species Act, it's arcane, but anyway. Um, so for example, the service proposed to not protect lesser prairie chickens in existing 
agricultural fields. Now, that confused a lot of people. They said, gosh, conversion to ag is one of the biggest threats to chickens. And the service did not say it's okay to convert existing prairie to ag. They said for ag fields that have already been converted, if chickens show up and you hit one with your combine, it's okay. And the reason for that is they don't want people, you know, making their fields unfriendly. They're already converted, but, you know, sometimes chickens will, you know, if they're growing corn, they're growing corn or, you know, whatever it is, right? So uh, on the edges, you know, they, they might sometimes use those ag fields. So that's kind of the difference between danger, trends a little more flexible. That's a very good explanation. I had no idea what the difference. So currently, though, lesser prairie chicken we can't hunt, right? We haven't been able to hunt lessers for uh, I don't know, at least twenty years, maybe longer. So, what I guess what's the rule that was put in place, or why was that put in place so long well, ago? And now we're just getting to endangered and threatened. That's what the environmentalists are asking. <laughs> Why did it take so long? Yeah, I should have been an that. environmentalist. Yeah. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. You know, environmentalists see an endangered species act listing as a tool, right? You know, to force more conservation. And yeah, it, it can be that. I, the fact is that 95% of lesser prairie chicken habitat is on private land, and the Fish and Wildlife Service will not recover lesser prairie chickens through regulation. They don't have the interest, they don't have the staff, they don't have the authority, they don't have the, the, the legal leverage to, to compel landowners to, you, you can't take a landowner to court because they overgraze their land, right? I mean, you don't have a dead chicken in your hand and the U.S. Justice Department isn't going to prosecute a landowner for overgrazing, that doesn't happen. You know, and so the, the circumstances around that aren't, aren't really what's going to happen. So, um, uh, and, and shoot, you I started off on your question. I swore to myself I was going to get back to it, and I didn't. <laughs> That's fine. We always get lost in tangents anyways. So, uh, I thought that so, was important. Yeah. No, the, I don't know if do you need me to ask the question again of what it was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, basically, the question was, uh, so it's been 20 years oh, yeah. or so since we've been able to hunt, and why are we just now getting to? Yeah, and so this is important as well. This is why I wanted to get back to it. So, uh it's been a state-managed species. It could, today, it's still a state-managed species, right? And so the states see chickens declining, declining, declining. The threat of a federal Endangered Species Act listing looms. The states don't like it because it takes away their management authority, right? States are in charge. Hey, we're in charge with, with the fossils, right? We don't want to list it under the ESA because we lose management authority. Um, and so they stop hunting because they want to keep birds around. The problem is hunting is not the threat. Hunting is not the threat. The threat is habitat loss. Yeah. And you're not going to get more chickens by stopping hunting. It, it, it's still wise to stop hunting, right? At some point, you got to stop shooting them, right? But, yeah. but we're losing habitat. To this day, we're losing habitat. So the gap in time there is the states managing the species saying, hey, we're losing critters. We can't keep hunting them. Smart. But we're still losing habitat. And now we're losing more birds. And finally, the federal listing is compelled, and the state's lose management authority, and we're down to less than 30,000 birds. And you know, we had uh, the Iowa DNR on, oh, God, months ago. And he was telling us, even for, like, Iowa, that we've lost enough acres from, like, Illinois to the Nebraska side of Iowa 
in the thin line, which I don't know how many miles that is. I think you said three miles um, wide. Yeah, three miles wide, the whole state long. That's how much cover we've lost for our birds. It's just crazy. It's crazy to think that. Like, that's a long ass yeah. ways. Yeah. And that's, you know, in that case, that's uh, more uh, industrial agriculture, right? More large scale, oh, more efficient, you know, those giant combines you see. <laughs> that's what's yeah. doing that. We, uh, we were out in South Dakota this past year, and one of the farms we stopped at, um, the guy is actually, his family is originally from Iowa. It's kind of a cool story. Um, <clears throat> north of where we live, and his great, I want to say his great-grandpa, uh, where he lives at now, rode out there on a covered wagon. Um, whenever it was, I can't remember the year they said it was established, but his family has farmed that land since. Uh, and he was saying all the land that's coming up for sale around them, um, a corporate farmer from up in the Minnesota area uh, is buying all the land. And he said, any, there's no, obviously no, really no fence rows out in the Dakotas out in those prairies, but all the uh, trees and all the shrubs, anything you can think of is just getting cleaned out and it's all making one big ass field basically. Have you ever wanted to process your own wild game from start to finish? Meet Your Maker has you covered. Meat makes professional-grade grinders, vacuum sealers, sausage stuffers, dehydrators, and just about everything else to turn your garage, deer camp, or kitchen into a meat processing haven. Meat only sells their processing tools direct to consumer, cutting out the retailer markup, guaranteeing you the best price. Meat also has the only lifetime warranty in the industry. And Meat ships your tools direct to you for free. Visit MeetYourMaker.com and use code Waypoint for an exclusive discount. And get ready to deer IY this fall. Exactly right. That's and that's your story, right? Three miles wide, you know, yeah. border to border. Yeah, yep. that's it. And it's that's just <laughs> yeah, it's just crazy. And you know, I think that we've put um, how long? I guess how long has the North American Grouse Partnership been around? 21 years 21 years it's crazy to think you know and, and maybe that's just uh naive on my part or uh just not since i live in iowa and our main bird is pheasant you know that all i think about when i think of organizations is like pheasants forever and they put so much emphasis on the ringneck pheasant and then you leave all these other game birds kind of out to dry because i can do the i mean i think the pheasants use like the grouse habitat but do grouse really use good pheasant cover um short answer is no and, and i'll say pheasants forever is one of our strongest supporters and most important partners they howard yeah. vincent ceo of pheasant forever is a huge native grouse fan and they're really uh, doing a lot to to help on this issue, but you're right. That's their good. focus, right, is in their name, right? It's pheasants. Now, pheasants use uh, taller, thicker cover than most native grouse. Yeah. So that's the difference there. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I just didn't. I said, I just it's it's such a new ball game when you you know we talk about grouse and stuff because we're you know like we're from Iowa, we don't know nope. that land, we don't know that 
you know, yeah. that bird and what it takes. And it's just always been interesting to me recently, not always, just more recently, how like the western part of Iowa just doesn't have grouse. Like we don't have any and not even in northern Iowa, you know, the rough grouse where those timbers are, they're they're just nothing for grouse here. Well, it seems you know, I, I, it's like I think there's hell. a few, but we don't know. Yeah, I mean, you might I mean, find we don't. You might find one lucky here and there, but we don't. Yeah, but we, all we've heard other... we've heard that there's a few. That's all we've seen, or that's all we've heard of. Yeah, I should say. but it's just crazy. All the states surrounding Iowa to the west have a grouse type of population, even Minnesota to the north of us. So, so think about that. Think of the cultural implications of what you just said, which I totally agree with. I think you're exactly right. Native grouse have been gone from Iowa for so long that you guys who live there and are passionate about upland birds don't even know of your lost legacy. It's been that long, right? No, no idea. I know I, I've talked to my grandpa and he's, you know, back when he was younger, he remembers uh, shooting a couple of rough grouse and he lives up uh, northeast Iowa where it's hilly and, you know, trees. But you, you talk to the old timers um, and they don't even have a grouse story from Iowa. You know, most no. of them don't. And I'm like, that is, that's crazy. You know, and some of them are 60, 70 years old. Um, and it's, I, I can't even, it's just so, it's such a hard concept for me to wrap my head around how we can have pheasants and some quail. I mean, we don't have a, a good we number have a of good quail. quail. Yeah, no, we do but not. How all of these states around us can have multiple species of birds, and <laughs> Iowa just doesn't have it. And, and yet, we seem to have the most food sources. I mean, I mean, if you look at crop wise, we have a lot of good food sources. Yeah, and that's you know, I was saying that's why some some ag field edges can be good for native grouse. But you have to have the native prairie still. You have to have the cover. You have to have yeah. that habitat. They can use those as food sources, but it's kind of like building a house with a kitchen and no bedroom and no bathroom. <laughs> I mean, you can't live there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. nowadays, that's all you get. Everything's so expensive. <laughs> Just put your bed in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Do uh, So what is the, what are the type of, I mean, if you if you were thinking of how could you get, grouse back to Iowa and just spitballing kind of, you know, off the top of your head. What... It, it is achievable. And so uh, I'll give the example for lesser prairie chickens. The, the best, largest remaining intact habitat left for lesser prairie chickens is 30-year-old CRP land in western Kansas on the northern end of the range. In fact, some argue it's even outside the historic range of lesser prairie chickens to the north of it. And yet that's where lesser prairie chickens are most successful. Because 30 years ago, the NRCS put together uh, a conservation reserve program package that interested enough landowners together contiguously that provided enough native grass. And they, and they required the landowners to plant native grasses and forbs, critically important, native grasses and forbs. And chickens got the memo and showed up. And, and that's our largest, our, our, our greatest stronghold for lesser prairie chickens today. I'm confident that if you went to Iowa or anywhere else, 
and you restored native prairie habitat, that you would get, you, you would, well, I mean, uh, it, and if it was adjacent to existing occupied habitat, that the, say, the, the uh, greater prairie chicken or sharp-tailed grouse or whatever was native to that part of the, the state, they would get the memo. So it wouldn't be something, like, let's say they introduced, uh, you know, like in the southwest part of Iowa, because that'd kind of probably be closest to the northwest part of Kansas that you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, let's say they reintroduced that type of native prairie grasses in a, I don't know, what's this, however many acres they did. Would it be something... How much? Hundred thousand. Hundred. Yeah. Great. That'd be great. Uh, if they did that, would it be where the prairie chickens you think would actually find their way there, or would it be something where either DNR or you know a partnership like you guys or someone would have, would have to, to plant them? introduce them? Would you have to plant them back yeah, out great, there? It's a great question. Great question. So, as I said before, these prairie grouse have this complex social behavior, right? Where they have leks, right? We, I think we all know this. The males go to a relatively bare patch of ground in the middle of the prairie, and they dance, and they strut, and they sing, and the females come in and say, ah, I'll have sex with you, and oh, I'll have sex with you, right? And then they go off and have sex, and the females go lay their eggs, and that's it. And so it's, it's geographically <laughs> that's what happened. That's what happened. I, I, believe I put yeah, a lek yeah. in my yard. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, it, so it's geographically, it's very specific. Now you'll get birds trading among leks, but they're adjacent to whatever lek they started at, right? And so if you have habitat next to that, you know, they'll bump from lek to lek to lek to, oh, look, here's an open piece of habitat. Here's some, you know, shorter vegetation. We can lek here. So two birds start lacking and two more birds show up and then a couple females show up. And before you know, you have a lack that's, you know, five miles from the last one. And then it happens again, five miles further out. And then it happens again, five miles further out. It, it, that, that's kind of how they would occupy that habitat if they could. If they can't, if it's too far away, you have to reintroduce them. But think about this. You've got to reintroduce so many males and females all at once that one, they have to figure out how to make a living there, which means eating and avoiding predators. And they're very bad at figuring out both of those quickly. So many, when you reintroduce birds, many die fast. So you have to have even more in order to have enough of a, what's called a propagule, enough individuals to initiate that social behavior and have a couple of different lacks so they can trade in between and the females can visit one and then the other and can have sex and go off and lay their eggs and then go to the next, you know what I mean? And so yeah. that's why reintroducing prairie grouse is so hard. Yeah. Do you think huh. with the reintroduction, so it seems like a lot of people, not a lot of people, but people in Iowa, they'll raise pheasants, like homegrown pheasants, right? And then put them out on their property to try to get a pheasant habitat started. Do you think that's even, would be even possible with prairie chicken? Because I don't even know if that actually works that well or not i've never looked at any studies you no know, great question so even there pheasants forever will tell you that putting pheasants out on your property is a losing proposition unless it's a put and take situation right you put pheasants out you go out within the week and shoot them so they're gone or dead um getting even getting wild pheasants to establish is hard now yep. 
we've been doing it for 150 years and it's worked and it's spread and it's still successful. But think of all the time and money and energy and effort it took to accomplish that. So we could do that with prairie grouse too, right? Uh, you know, it's not that much of a leap. We could do that with prairie grouse, but that's the kind of concerted effort that it would take. Yeah. And you'd have to hmm. have someone willing to have that many acres to put into that type of native grasses, yeah. which is it going to pay, you know, and it's not, it won't, it won't pay. Yeah. Right. And, and 95% of the Great Plains are private. Jobs. So, you know, what is it going to take to incentivize landowners to, you know, to want to do that? Yeah. Cause I'm guessing there's not a, so like Pheasants Forever has programs where you can enroll into it like a 10 year program of uh, CRP grasses and whatnot. I'm guessing there's probably not a program of such for in the prairies to do that for, for farmers to do that. Um, there, there are programs, like I said, CRP in Western Kansas 30 years ago did just that. Okay. So, so we've actually done this before using USDA farm bill conservation programs. And, and so my, and, and I believe I am no expert when it comes to farm bill programs. But my question that I've been asking USDA agencies lately is, can we just do that again? <laughs> we were successful 30 years ago. Let's just do that again now, here, there. You know, yeah. Over. I mean, that makes complete sense. Yeah. yeah. If they have to change the, you know, payment per acre or whatever to That's right. go with what yeah. inflation is and all that stuff, then change that price and let's get to going. Amen, brother. That is exact. That's the biggest thing. You talk to landowners, that's the biggest impediment you just said. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, with the price of, I, I think corn's gone up, you know, and whatnot. So I'm sure, you know, you got to raise your prices to match that because they're not going to take out, you know, take a lesser payment, I guess. You know, they got families. Yeah, to they feed can't and, afford to. They're know. making a living off. They're feeding their family. They're sending their kids to college off of there. You know, you can't yeah. expect them to just, out of the goodness of their heart, donate their land to chickens, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, especially the True. amount of land. Especially the hundreds of thousands of acres that it would take. That's exactly right. You almost yeah. got to find that uh, the guy that's 65 years old with no kids that's ready to yeah. retire that it's like, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. And yep. you pay me this much for as long as I have it in there, then I'll gladly do that. You know, you'd be amazed at the number of landowners that say, look, I grow beef and I have a commercial market to monetize that so I can pay myself and make a living. If I could get paid to grow lesser prairie chickens, I'd do it in a heartbeat because I love native prairies. I love wildlife. I love native wildlife. I hate that lesser prairie chickens are about to be an endangered species. Pay me to grow lesser prairie chickens. Yeah. They, I mean, they really feel that way. I mean, because because they can still grow cows. They're probably fewer cows. But if you pay them, to grow lesser prairie chickens enough, and they can also get paid when they sell their cows, they'll, they'll do both. They will. It covers that cost of the loss of less cattle. It's such a, it's such a fine line with farmers and in that, and you got to find the right, you got to find the right exact farmer that wants to wants to do that. Really, and, and you'd be amazed how many there are. And you know, just like you know, the oil and gas guys aren't bad guys, right? The the, the wind energy people aren't bad. Farmers aren't and ranchers aren't bad either. It's just they've got to make a living. You, we would we would act the same way that you know we have got to produce the the best income on our land that we can. And growing lesser prairie chickens is usually not 
that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure there's not or, a... Or, yeah. The thing, though, like you said, if the USDA would come back with what they did 30 years ago yeah. and pay them X amount per acre to have in this prairie grasses, it's one, it's less work for them once it gets established, right? right. They just got to plant it. And then two, you have less work, but potentially the same amount of profit or income with less work overall because you might have less cattle. So you just have less things to do, I guess you could say, or less on your plate, right? Yep. Uh, yeah, and think about it this way. Ranchers don't just provide beef to our society. They provide healthy soils, healthy vegetation, clean water, clean air. They can even provide carbon sequestration. Prairies provide a lot of carbon sequestration, sometimes more than forests, because forests are so slow-growing. Prairies are turned over much faster, right? And, but, yep. but here's the problem. The only thing where there's a commercial market is for the cows. They don't yet have a commercial market for carbon. They don't yet have a commercial market for wildlife habitat. And so, and so then we have these programs, like farm bill programs, um, that are designed to pay ranchers for exactly that, right? Dust bowl came along, unhealthy soil, bad watersheds, unclean air. Hey, let's develop these farm bill conservation programs to pay these landowners to do a better job taking care of those resource values because all Americans value clean air and clean water and clean, healthy soils, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and we've just, we seem to have faded away from that more and more. And uh, we're, 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 we're failing to hit the mark well enough like we did 30 years ago and our lesser period took an example. So, uh, yeah, so we need to pay them for those products. They're not just growing beef, they're growing all these other things for our benefit. Yeah. What's, a, what's the process for getting that type of bill established? Or I don't even know if you want to call it a bill through the USDA and whatnot, what they did. And so here, if you're, especially if you are from a prairie state, from an ag state like Iowa or any other, you know, Central Plains state, but, but any state, please, please, uh, Michigan, I think a current chair of the uh, Senate uh, Ag Committee is from Michigan, uh, Stabenow, I think. Um, please, please reach out to your elected representatives and urge them to pay landowners for all of the products they grow, not just beef, and to pay them adequately. Pay them adequately. We want prairie grass. We want clean water and clean air and healthy soils and carbon sequestration. Do the math, pay what it takes for them to be ranchers of not only cows, but all those other values. Yeah. And you think about it, if you're able to do that, eventually it's somehow going to come around and help pay for itself through, you know, licenses, I guess, for hunting, through, you know, whatever They could charge for access. I mean, imagine if you were the only place in Iowa you could hunt greater prairie chickens. Imagine <laughs> what that landowner could get per hunter per day, right? I mean, people, yeah. I, I went, I, I did a hunt in eastern Oregon, just outside of Boise. I'm just, I live just north of Boise. This winter, I, I don't know, how much does it cost me? Does 150 bucks sound right for a day of shooting pheasants or 100 bucks or whatever it was? I mean, imagine sounds... if you had a lesser prairie chicken experience, you could get twice that. Oh, yeah. You know, imagine if you're that landowner. Imagine how valuable that would be. And you're still growing cows. <laughs> yeah. Yep. No, that's a good way to look at it is, yeah, when you think of a, a rancher, you think of someone who's riding on horseback and, um, you know, 
sending their cattle down the road at whatever weight you don't even think of you know what they can do for the landscape and what they can do to help wildlife and just even the overall green green energy you know energy for the for the world or you know the u.s i guess is what we're focused on yeah and there's and there's places for that there's places where that can happen like I, most of iowa is a great place right now to do not hurt any native prairie grass yeah. i hate to say it i hate to say it but right yeah that's crazy hard about that hmm. It's just, yeah, it's so interesting, you know, when you dive into these type of topics is, you know, I would know nothing about it if we didn't do this podcast and didn't, you know, meet guys like you and reach out to these organizations. I think it's awesome to get the word out, you know, about what you guys are doing and um, how as hunters and conservationists, how we can help and, you know, if, you have family farms and whatnot, you know, yeah. what you can do to help that out. But yeah, it's and thank you for doing this podcast and for letting me join because um you know it's opportunities like this where we all learn from each other, right? And uh, okay. and, and think bigger than we knew how to think, right? I mean again, you know, from Iowa, your legacy of prairie grouse is so long lost that it's hard to imagine, right? Yeah. I mean you could It'd be awesome to find. I don't even know if you'd find someone that had that's ever shot a prairie chicken, you know, in Iowa. Yeah, you know, it's, it's absolutely crazy. Um, so, it, since we're on the prairie chickens and the birds, do you got any good stories of hunting them that you'd like to tell us? Sage grouse. Um, yeah. So, well, sage grouse are my jam. I mean, that's and I don't. I haven't killed a lot, but they're, they're just. So magnificent uh, they're, they're, you know a, a big bull sage grouse or cock you know is uh you know probably half the size of a turkey you know and when they get up they thunder and so that's uh that's what everybody's been saying you'll know you'll know what it is when it gets up yeah <laughs> it's exactly right there will be no doubt in your mind should i pull the trigger oh yeah this is it so uh, but they're just so magnificent. And, and, and seeing them on the lack, I, I mean, all the prairie grouse are awesome, but sage grouse, they, they have this incredibly cool, they have these magnificent yellow air sacs and a big white bib and trimmed with black, and they're, they just look insanely magnificent. Like They look like royalty out there on the lack starting males. So, so if you ever get a chance to go to a sage grouse mm -hmm. lack and watch the males in April, you know, and, and anywhere in sage grouse country, I want you to listen to their call and tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but but hunting them is just such an experience there um oh, man. and limits are down i think limits are down to one a day now in idaho because so you know west prairie chickens they stopped hunting 20 plus years ago right sage grouse were down to one grouse a day in idaho and i'm afraid that in the next 10 years that'll be zero grouse and we won't be hunting sage grouse in idaho anymore because they're going away why habitat loss so crazy. hunt them while you can yeah because yeah. hunting is not the threat hunting is not the threat. just all these prairie grouse Hunting is not a threat. In fact, it's a conservation opportunity. And so hunt them while you can. Uh, but but you'll know when they're getting up and they're just, it, it's a, take pictures because you'll want to remember that. You'll want to tell your grandkids about the time you're able to hunt stage grouse. Yeah, that's one. So so I wear a GoPro when, when we hunt. Um, and sometimes I feel like an idiot wearing it because it's like, oh, you're that guy that films, you know, and puts on YouTube and whatnot. But I'm like, it's also now out there. So when I'm 50 years old and 60 years old yeah. or whatever, if YouTube's still around, I don't know if it will be, but 
it'd be awesome to if, if I ever have kids or grandkids or whatnot that be like, look at this back when I was, you know, early thirties out here and we go to Wyoming to shoot sage or whatnot. Problem is you can't hit shit, so we'll have it on camera, but it'll be flying away. Hey, is there something you can, you can hit a sage grouse? Yeah, yeah. If I miss a sage grouse, then we got some real issues from the sound. I've, I've, missed, I've missed sage grouse, but 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 they're a great opportunity for you to have a second or third shot. So yeah, are they kind of are they slower when they get up? Or they bust I out. Just, I mean, they're surprisingly quick for how big they are, and they can get down range. You know, if they got the wind in their back, right? They can disappear in a heartbeat. But you know, typically, like you're hunting them in the wind with their dogs, a sage grouse gets up, and you know, you can. In fact, <laughs> one of my times, I remember I was hunting sage grouse in Nevada, and I had my dog. I was with my yellow lab. This is the one of the first, you know, first birds you ever treat in sage grouse. And this grouse got up ten yards away. And I thought I took my talon, mount my gun, and you know, lay my cheek on the stock and put the bead right below its head. But man, when I pulled that trigger, there was <laughs> we all had it, right? Boom! This explosion of feathers. Oh, you sound and, like uh, Nick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was not able to eat that sage grouse. So wild to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So give them time. Uh, if they're getting up into the wind to try to fly away from you, give them time. Yeah. Know that we're definitely it'd definitely be an awesome bird to to shoot at and to see and like I said everybody's like oh just wait till they get up and like you said have that thunder when they bust out of the yeah. stage. It's a magnificent. It's a lot, and, and the country is so beautiful. You know, the high plains, you know, sagebrush plains of you know Wyoming or Idaho, Montana or you know, Utah. It's it's just usually you got a mountainous backdrop. You know, and it's it's uh an adventure it's an adventure and, and you'll relish that i'm so excited for you yeah. i want to hear how it goes yeah no we're excited that. too do you yeah. uh do you still hunt with dogs yeah, i've uh, just my lab, lab i'm uh, about this close to getting an upland dog not sure what time yeah. but uh now that i'm retired quote unquote <laughs> supposed to have more time to hunt so i promised myself i get an upland dog but i don't get my lab out enough anyway Wine, wine, wine. Yeah. So I retired. I was a federal employee of U.S. Fish Monitor Service, and I, uh, when I, I had to work on sage grouse and less prairie chickens, and so the grouse partnership came and said, "Hey, we'll be our executive director." And of course, I said, "No thanks." Now here I am. Right. So uh, <laughs> it's a part-time position, but uh, especially right now, it's becoming more than part-time every day. And uh, on top of that, my wife and I moved back to Idaho. Uh, we raised our kids here. And we just built our forever home and are busy living happily ever after. And uh, awesome. I was just out there killing spotted knapweed and rush skeleton weed and thistle. And uh, anyway, all of a sudden, I'm trying to be a, a practicing agriculturalist at the same time. So. <laughs> yeah, you're a busy plate for a half retired man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or should we say, sure is fun. Yeah. yeah. Nope, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, Ted, we definitely appreciate you coming on and talking about yeah, thank you very much. Lesser Prairie Chickens, what the North American Grouse Partnership is about, and just everything else. It was it was great to learn about it, and definitely opens our eyes up to to more than you know what's always seems to be right in front of us and uh, whatnot. So, again, thank you. We appreciate it. Uh, we'll definitely stay in touch, uh, and you know if there's things that we can do to help you know spread the knowledge with our platform that we have and whatnot definitely let us know and we can try to help out where we can 
So, so if I can just mention two things in closing, um, uh, that would be very helpful if your listeners would be willing to take a little time. One, contact your congresspersons and senators and urge them to pass the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, or RAWA. It'll take uh, uh, excise taxes from uh, oil and gas development and give them to states to conserve non-game species. So for lesser prairie chickens, states used to be able to spend a lot of money on them. When they could no longer hunt them, they became a non-game species. States couldn't spend as much money. RAWA, Recovering America's Wildlife Act, would empower those states to start spending more money conserving those species in their habitats. Secondly, uh, North American Grassland Conservation Act has not yet been introduced to Congress, but key partners of ours, like Pheasants Forever, National Wildlife Federation, and others, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, are advocating uh, for a development of and passage of the North American Grassland Conservation Act. Again, prairie ecosystems, the most threatened on the continent. We have to have this. Your listeners may be familiar with the North American Wetlands Conservation Act, which has been incredibly successful. In fact, of all the groups of birds across North America, one, grassland birds have declined more than any other group of birds. The only group of birds to not decline over the last 50 years are wetland birds or waterfowl. Isn't that interesting? The That's reason crazy. why? Yeah. NACA, North American Wetlands Conservation Act. We need a North American Grasslands Conservation Act to do the same thing for our native grasslands. So please contact it, your congresspersons and senators. Yeah. Support RAWA and support North American Grasslands Conservation Act. Yeah, for sure. That goes right back to the hunters aren't the ones that are causing the numbers drops, right? That's right. With the waterfowl, yeah, I mean, you see yeah. stacks of birds, right? That the success of waterfowl conservation is driven by hunters, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, duck stamp dollars. Hunters did that to themselves. Pittman Robertson dollars on hunting gear. Dingle Johnson Act dollars on fishing gear. Hunters and anglers are the ones who pay for the conservation in this country. And that's why RAWA is so important, Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which has already been uh, passed through committee in both houses of Congress, but it only needs to be voted on by the full Senate and the full House, because it would take dollars not from hunters to pay for these non-game species. It's yeah. very important that we pass that this session. It has to happen this session. Nice. Yeah, we'll uh, definitely mention that when we put the description out and everything will include it in there. If you have a, a link or something, um to those okay. at all uh can you all right. well i guess i can probably look them up too but um, um, i will yeah i i will uh let's see I, yeah i'll shoot you an email with whatever i find real quick that's a good question I, i'm confident that the groups advocating for this have a website for that but uh, to be honest yeah. i don't know it and if they do uh, i'll put it in the description of this yeah. episode that way it's in there yeah. we can point right so, to it i'll uh, track that down and get it to you Okay. Awesome. Again, we appreciate it. It was great. Yeah. Thanks for taking Thanks, the Dave. time out of your busy schedule. And uh, we hope you're new forever home and uh, homestead. And, you know, eventually when you get a new pup, everything goes good. So. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. It's right. been a lot of Thank fun. Thank you, sir. Yep. You have a good you one. Bye. Bye.